Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you this morning. It's dark outside, but light in here. Uh, well, this is a big weekend for Ole Miss, isn't it? Everybody's going to be here next Thursday, so happy. All the Ole Miss grads bragging about the great victory on the previous Saturday. Yes, sir. Just wait and see. It's going to happen. All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, you will remember that Paul is responding to two things. One is a letter he's received with a bunch of questions in it from the church, and we're going to see what kind of wild and crazy questions they had a little later. And the other was a report he had uh, from a woman named Chloe who told him about some stuff going on in the church. And the thing that really upset him the most it seems it was the first issue he takes on in these first four chapters, which is that the brothers were striving and quarreling among each other and acting just like they did before they became Christians. And we know what it's like to be involved in politics. It's just striving and quarreling and pride and boasting and, and all kinds of stuff going on. We know what it's like to be in competitive business and, and we know what it's like to, to be in sports with all the striving and ambition and self-advancement that goes on there. We know what it's like, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of dysfunctional families. But you come to the church and you think, hey, everybody's going to love each other, and you, and you see the same thing going on. And Paul was saying to them, this can't go on. This is not what the church is to be about. We're supposed to be serving each other, not striving with each other and trying to tear each other down or advance ourselves over each other. And we've seen that the uh, primary source of this striving seemed to be that they were following after particular teachers and taking pride in their teachers. And when we do that, what Paul is showing us is that it's, it's not that the teachers are dividing us, it's our own pride that's dividing us as we divide up among teachers. It's amazing. When, when you boast about somebody and you, become, you develop a party spirit about them, what you're really doing is boasting in yourself. And you see it, of course, every fall in America with the football season. You know, grown men who graduated from college 30 years ago getting all upset because some 18-year-old fumbled the ball on, on a playing field. I mean, what's that all about? It's about my, my pride, you know, my, my alma mater. You know, they're supposed to be winning and make me feel better when I go to the office on Monday morning. And isn't it true you all face the office on Monday morning? People are making fun of your team or saying, man, your team is really good. And you go, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you had nothing to do with it. It's just your pride. And uh, people do that in the church. They get all divided up into denominations and who, who's teaching my Sunday school class and what group I'm in and what conference I got invited to and you didn't get invited to. And uh, it's unbelievable. And Paul says that's got to stop. And furthermore, we've seen that Paul has shown how this uh, particular issue is rooted in some other uh, uh, pagan thought forms, namely the thought form of wisdom and what wisdom is. And in the pagan world, we didn't go into this in detail, but, but in the pagan world, uh, you, were, uh, you become a, an enlightened initiated person by receiving uh, mystical wisdom. And you are inaugurated into another level of living by being a wise person. And the ones who go about teaching this wisdom are the philosophers. So the philosophers and the pagan gods are associated in this way that you enter into the Illuminati, the enlightened ones, through the development of wisdom according to the philosophers who were in many cases just talking around in circles and saying not much of anything but saying it beautifully and so it was sort of this empty inane uh, ethically uh, unhelpful uh, wisdom that was being preached on the streets that was the way in which you rise to the top and they were evaluating their Christian teachers and preachers based on categories of old pagan wisdom. So it's just all messed up, and Paul is straightening it out. And we've seen in chapter 1 that he says, look, first of all, you've got to realize that 
Real wisdom, divine wisdom, is what the world considers to be foolish. And he tells us again about the cross. And he says the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. It seems to be foolish and weak, but it's actually wise and strong. So the cross. And then he says that the Spirit is the one who gives us wisdom. And he teaches them about the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to pick up here in chapter 3, and he's continuing to press his case. And this morning I want us to think about how this affects us in our churches, or if you're not in a church, how it affects you in Christian fellowship, or how it affects you in your not being in a church. It has something to do with that. And we'll see how that applies to us in just a few moments. But Paul continues his argument here, and he's going to show us that there's some things that we didn't understand as we apply wisdom to our lives. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand the nature of Christian leaders and what they're like. We don't understand the nature of the church and how important it is. And he's going to show us that the wisdom of this world has led us astray in several categories where we need to be bolstered in our thinking. So let's look at chapter 3. We pick up the argument where he left it off. At the end of chapter 2, he says, we have the mind of Christ. He says the natural person, in verse 14 of chapter 2, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he's saying... Uh, you folks in Corinth who think you're so spiritual, that you're the enlightened ones, that you're not bound by human flesh, you're, you're so wise. He says, uh, we're going we're gonna to see that he says to them, you're really not so spiritual after all. And this would have been a great insult to them because the, in uh, pagan uh, ideology, human flesh was considered... Um, basically part of the evil system. And to become enlightened was to get your mind in, out of the flesh, almost like an out-of-body experience. And God himself was complete spirit. That's the reason the incarnation to them was completely impossible. God would have nothing to do with flesh. And so the incarnation was impossible. So they thought of themselves as being very spiritual, very enlightened, very uh, eloquent, and Paul is saying, you're just the opposite. And he says, look, you've got to understand that spiritual things are not understood unless one has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We saw that last time. But he says, look, in the end of chapter 2, you are the ones who have the mind of Christ. So you shouldn't be acting or thinking this way. You're different. Let's look, pick it up now with chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. Get ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amen. Okay, let's look at these first four verses, this first little paragraph to learn that our divisiveness reveals our childishness. The reason for our quarreling and our strife and our selfish ambition is we're all acting like a bunch of babies. We're all acting childish. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people, though you think of yourself as spiritual. I mean, he's going right into their face. He's taking the very label that they cherish for themselves, enlightened spiritual people. And he says, that's the last thing you are. He says, you're not spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As, and get this word, infants in Christ. He says in Christ. <laughs> he says in Christ. Please notice this. And notice uh, the third word in this sentence, brothers. So we're not talking about people that Paul has excommunicated. He says you're so bad, you know, you're, not, you're not in the church or you're not in Christ. He's talking to them as brothers. He's talking to them as in Christ. But he's saying you're acting like little infants. Now there's a word for child in the New Testament that Jesus uses and the apostle himself uses that is an endearing word. But this is a word for baby, which is not endearing at all. And he's saying you're acting like a baby. And he says to them here, you know, I I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And so he says, that's fine. When you become a new Christian, we we give you spiritual milk. And milk is good. Uh, It's good now for our babies. Uh, Spiritual milk is good. It's the gospel of Christ. But we we don't feed our babies meat. They don't have teeth. They don't have a digestive system that's ready for that. So we don't give them meat. We give them meat later. But we give them milk to begin with. And he says, the problem with you is that you were born a long time ago and I'm still only able to give you milk. I can't give you meat. You're five years old. You can't eat a piece of meat. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your system? What's wrong with, with you as a human being? And he's saying you're a big fat baby. Uh, you remember that song? You may remember the song by Amy Grant. I used to love this song that she would sing. She said, I know a man. Maybe you know him too. You never can tell. He might even be you. He knelt at the altar and that was the end. He's saved, and that's all that matters to him. His spiritual tummy, it can't take too much. One day a week, he gets a spiritual lunch. On Sunday, he puts on his spiritual best and gives his language a spiritual rest. He's just a fat, he's just a fat little baby. Wah, wah, wah. He wants his bottle, and he don't mean maybe. He sampled solid foods once or twice, but he says, doctrine leaves him cold as ice. Baby, baby, baby. He's been baptized, sanctified, redeemed by the blood. But his daily devotions are stuck in the mud. He knows the books of the Bible in John 3, 16. He's got the biggest King James you've ever seen. (laughs) I've always wondered if he'll grow up someday. He's mama's boy and he likes it that way. If you happen to see him, tell him I said he'll never grow if he never gets fed. He's just a fat, 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 fat little baby. That's Amy Grant. Well, it's true, isn't it? Sometimes we act like fat little babies. We just want our milk, don't want to change our diet. We liked it the way it was when we became a Christian. We remember what we were doing when we became a Christian. Remember how everybody treated us. Remember how exciting everything was. I just want that same old excitement every Sunday. Just want to have the same experience every Sunday. Fat, fat, fat little baby. And Paul says, I can't talk to you about much of anything because you're acting like babies. You're not going to grow up. Gentlemen, how, how do we grow up? How do we cease to be fat little babies? Well, you've got to 
develop your diet. And of course you start with John 3.16. But then you go from there and read the rest of John. And then you go from there and read the rest of the New Testament. And you go from there and read the rest of the Bible. And then you go from there and you say, how can I apply this Bible? And so we've got to be in the Word if we're going to grow. Otherwise, we're going to be in these big, fat bodies. And we're going to be wah, wah, wah like babies. We've got to be in the Word. And so you're constantly taking in the meat of the Word, says the Apostle. And that's what we're trying to do in Amen. That's what, that's what all of us should be doing every day. Get your, get your mind in that Bible every day. You don't have to read. If you want to read through the Bible in a year, it's three and a half chapters a day. You don't have to read three and a half chapters a day. How about a chapter? Or how about a paragraph that you take seriously? One paragraph. That's one thought unit from a little ESV heading to the next ESV heading. Several verses. How about reading that? and digesting it and asking the Lord, Lord, what does this mean to me today? That's how you grow. And we grow because we, secondly, we not only read the Bible, but we take responsibility for our ethical lives. Babies don't take responsibility. They're expecting you to change their diapers, to give them their bottle, to protect them, to buy them clothes, to, to provide a bed for them, uh, entertainment for them. Babies are always expecting other people to take responsibility for them. As we grow, we begin to take responsibility for ourselves. So if I've got an anger problem, that's my responsibility. It's not my abusive father's fault any longer. Well, he was responsible for himself. But you're responsible even for the outcome of that child ring. You're responsible. So you take responsibility for your anger. You take responsibility for your finances. Don't blame anything else. Don't blame bad markets. Don't blame getting fired. Don't blame that boss. You take responsibility for your finances. Take responsibility for the way that you love your wife. Instead of continuing to think, you know, if I just had married that other girl in high school, <laughs> you know, my life would have been so much better. We constantly want to blame somebody else, including her and her behavior or something like that. Stop blaming that. Uh, instead of blaming uh, God for the circumstances or the body he gave you or something else that he gave you. Take responsibility for who you are and living your life. That's what grown people do. That's not what these people were doing. They were striving with each other and blaming each other. So we read the Bible. We listen to God's word. We grow in our understanding of it. We take responsibility for applying that word to our lives. And then I want to mention a third thing that, that is, I think, a mark of growing up. And that is that we start serving other people. We stop going to church looking for whether we like the choral anthem or the flowers up front or we got our favorite parking spot or people were nice to us. Adults are going to church thinking, how can I worship the Lord and bring Him pleasure today? How can I encourage someone alongside me today? How can I find someone that I can give a good word to today? How can I look for a mission in which to engage as I'm being taught today? That's what grown-ups do. They serve other people. That's the reason for being grown up. And Paul is saying, you're acting like infants. He said, I started off feeding you milk, and I'm still feeding you milk. So he's saying to these Corinthians, you've got to grow up. And you're being stunted in your growth for several reasons, and let's go ahead and get to that. He says, we start out as infants. And in verses 2b through 4, he says, but we sometimes fail to grow up. Even now you're not ready. And he says, here, I'll prove it to you. Number one, your quarreling proves it. So when we quarrel, or as Leon Morris, as you may have noticed if you read the, uh, the um, commentary on this passage, he says this word strife just means self-assertion or unhealthy rivalries. So you're jealous and you're striving. You're trying to defeat the people around you. You're trying to be better than somebody else. Does that not prove that you haven't grown up? Does that not prove that you're a child, he says, and uh, just thinking about yourself? Does that not prove that you are, and here he uses a little bit different word about flesh, and it's not brought out so clearly in the ESV. But he says here, are you still of, are, for you are still of the flesh. And it's a word here that says you, you, that's your very nature, is that you're being fleshly. Uh, now, 
let me take a little side road here for it. Well, let's, let's look at the second point he makes in verse 4, and then we'll take a little side road. He shows that our partisan spirit also proves that we've not grown up, that we are looking to take sides. It's kind of like gangs. You know, gangs provide things that, that kids don't have because they don't have fathers, they don't have healthy families, and so they'll go into gangs because there you get a, at least a big brother figure, often a father figure in the gang. In the gang, you get something that's missing in the, in the, the family that some of these folks that, uh, have been in, and that is a sense of belonging to each other, protecting each other. So gangs are actually providing something uh, that feels good to these kids, and it gives them purpose and meaning in life to try to advance the cause of their gang. And sometimes you go into church and you find little gangs, people who are clustering together to make themselves feel better, getting things that they were missing in their families, which is kind of a, a dysfunctional uh, interdependence on each other, not allowing others to come into that gang. I mean, it's amazing. I, I was in church one day. This is decades ago, actually. And uh, I saw a woman come in, and she went to where she normally sits, her pew. And somebody was sitting in it. And she stood there. She just stared at him. And finally, they just kind of sheepishly scooted over a little bit, and she sat down. She's just claiming turf. What's church to her? Her seat where she can enjoy her service, kind of like, you know, when you get the football game on, get the beer and the, you know, and the pretzels and whatever, and you, you just got everything you want, and it's the way you go to church. And we, we form sometimes our associations that way, too. They're all about our comfort. And some people who are supposed to be grown up will just look for little ways. They'll start Sunday school classes. Grown men do this. They'll start a Sunday school class so that they can be with their friends. And they'll get a little group of their friends together to start their Sunday school class. And, of course, nobody else dares join it. It has no reference to the outside world, certainly no reference to the lost world, because if you're going to be in this little group, you've got to be one of our proven friends. It's gang behavior. And Paul says, does this not prove that you're still children, that you're going to church, you're being involved in spiritual things only for partisan purposes? And sometimes you'll find people uh, who will go to church or go to a Bible study, and things are fine until you start talking about politics. And wham, it's like a, a wedge just hit that table, and people fall off all over, you know, on either side. You're either Republican or you're Democrat. And that's the thing that labels you. And how could you be a Christian and think that, we say? How could you be part of that party and be a Christian? You know, there are Democrats who say they can't imagine someone could really be a Christian and be a Republican, right? And the Republicans, I've heard them say the same thing. It's childish behavior. It's partisan spirit. You're allowing yourself to be divided according to the old world's way of thinking. And Paul is saying, does this not prove it? Uh, our partisan spirit proves it. Now let's take an aside here because sometimes this text is used to suggest that there are two types of Christians in the church. Carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. And, uh, you know, there's a, in Campus Crusade, uh, that there's a famous illustration that in many ways uh, had this controversy being stirred up in the church for several decades because uh, in the presentation... It basically said, are you a carnal Christian? If so, so, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, people were debating as to whether you can really be a carnal Christian. That is, to be a Christian and have yourself on the throne of your heart. And what you need to do is become a spiritual Christian and put Jesus on the throne of your heart. Here's what Paul is actually saying here. If you use this text to try to create legitimacy for two types of Christians, I think you've misused the text because here's what Paul is saying. He's using the idea that, yeah, you're a carnal Christian, but there is no such thing. There is no category for carnal Christian. That's the irony of what he's saying. That's the reason that he's making them feel silly because he's saying, are you not acting fleshly? And Christians don't act fleshly. So aren't you an impossible human being? What, aren't you an impossibility? Because you can't be a follower of Christ and also be a follower of the way of the pagans. 
So actually the argument is working the other way, that there, that there is no legitimacy to this category. Now, if someone is acting carnally, following the ways of this world, and gets challenged with the gospel, if they are believers, they will leave behind the ways of their childishness. If they're not believers, that'll bounce right off their heads like everything else the apostles said, and they'll continue to go on in the ways of the world and fake being a Christian. So we don't know the outcome here of every single individual. But a really regenerate, spiritually-minded person will hear Paul's challenge and grow and leave behind the ways of their infancy. So here he's saying our divisiveness reveals our childishness. We start out as infants, though we sometimes fail to grow up. He says our quarreling proves it, our partisan spirit proves it, and here's where he goes with this argument. In verses 5 through 15, we see that he's going to teach us that we see our leaders wrongly. When we're immature spiritually, when we're acting like babies, we look at leaders wrongly. Paul says in verse 5, first of all, they are just servants. They're just servants. Notice in verse 5, he doesn't say who then is Apollos or who is Apollos. He says what? What is Apollos? What is Paul? To say they're, they're just, they're, they're nothings. They're just little instruments that God uses. They're what's, not even who's. And you're treating them like champions. He says, what are they? He says, they're servants. And he uses the word from which we get the word deacon, uh, to mean, which means household servants. So it's, he says, you're vaunting Paul and Cephas and Apollos as though they are demigods. They're just butlers in a house. I mean, what would it be like if you, you get an invitation to see the president in the White House? And uh, when you get there, you're just so impressed with everything. And uh, you're first of all impressed with the guard who meets you at the door. I mean, he's got this nice Marine uniform on. And you just want to spend the day with him. He's so impressive. You want to know about what all of his ribbons are about, what battles he fought in, how long he's been at the White House. And pretty soon, it's about 6 o'clock at night, and you spent the whole day talking to the Marine who's guarding the door. You missed your entire opportunity to be with the president in the Oval Office because you were so impressed with a Marine at the door. How silly. Now, I can understand if I take my 4-year-old granddaughter, she'd be very impressed. And as far as she's concerned, the Marine is more interesting than the president. I get that. But she's a child. And Paul is saying, you're more interested in the servants than you are the master. What is wrong with you? You're missing the whole boat. He said, Who are, what, what is Apollos, what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed, not in whom you believed. And they're acting as though they believe in these men. Now, I know that we all have our favorite teachers. Uh, I, have a, I have several favorite teachers. Uh, most of them are dead, actually. But there are a couple of them that are alive, but most of them are dead. And I do, in some ways, revere these people. And I'm sure that I hold them in, in too high esteem at times. And I need to be taught this too. The most brilliant teacher I ever had is just an instrument, a servant in the house, a nothing compared to the master. You've got to let people who are influencing you influence you to love the Lord. And if they are the right influence for you, if they are really good teachers for you, they're going to have you falling in love with Jesus Christ, being obedient to Jesus Christ, and boasting about Jesus Christ. That's what the teachers want to do. That's what Paul is doing. He's their teacher. So they are just servants. And secondly, verses 6 and 7, they are just means. They're not the end. Paul says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And, you know, this is a real challenge for you. Some of you have been around for a while. Uh, you know, if you're at, at Bellevue and when Adrian Rogers retired and then he died, well, as far as you're concerned, your Christianity is just over. It's gone. That's it. No way anybody can come in behind Adrian Rogers. And we, we watched you all struggle, you know, at, uh, at Bellevue. 
you know, finally, it took Steve Gaines about three, four years to convince you that he's, you know, an knucklehead just like Adrian, and, and you can listen to him too, and you can grow and love Jesus just as much through Steve Gaines as you can through Adrian Rogers. Now, that took some, some people, uh, didn't it, you Bellevue Baptist folks? It took a few people a few years to realize that, you know, God can use uh, Balaam's ass if he wants to. Uh, or Adrian, or Steve, or, or anybody else. And it doesn't really matter, does it? And when you really get connected with the Lord, if you're growing up, uh, He can use uh, all kinds of people. And we see it here as second, when we have leadership change, or we'll have a, a, a funeral of someone who's a really notable leader in our midst, who's helped a lot of people. And you, just feel, you can just feel people's shoulders droopy. But then after a few days, they realize, you know what? That was a gift from God, but that wasn't God. That was a servant of God, but it wasn't God. That was a minister of Christ, but it wasn't Christ. Christ is on the throne. God is above. And He's still going to speak to me through other uh, knuckleheads. So Paul is trying to make this really clear to them that, that their faith is not in Apollos, as wonderful a speaker as he was. And he was a great orator, apparently. And Paul says, don't put your faith in his oratory. And it's interesting, uh, the suspicion that one would get as you read this, and also 2 Corinthians, we'll get to later. Part of the problem for Paul, <laughs> frankly, was he was being unfavorably compared to the other guys, Apollos and Cephas. Uh, so part of the problem was they were discounting Paul's apostolic authority because he wasn't the, quite the speaker that Apollos was. That was another problem. We'll get to that in 2 Corinthians. But for the meanwhile, he's laying a framework to say all of us are just oxens, just mules uh, in, in God's service, if, if you will. Now, look, he says in verses 8 through 15, if we can look at this big text, and we'll divide it up in little parts here because there's some important truths being taught. Uh, he says, they are rewarded. That is, they are being rewarded and paid. So Paul says, we're working on the farm and we draw a wage. So we're, don't, don't get so impressed with farm hands. How about being impressed with the one who owns the farm? is paying all the wages. And he says, look, uh, we're being paid as common laborers. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labors. So he says, look, one waters, one plants, but we all just get paid from the same owner. And it's the owner with whom we want to be impressed. And then in verse 9 he says, we, we, are, uh, we are rewarded as God's fellow servants. Now this is quite a phrase. We're God's fellow workers. What a wonderful phrase to apply to yourself. Are you God's fellow worker? So yes, you're a worker in his field, but you're a fellow worker with him. That's amazing. When you're, when you're in Christ, uh, that's uh, what we are. And notice in verse 9, and Leon Morris points this out, that God's name comes first three times. God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. Do you get the point? It's all about God. That's what a mature person realizes. Now in verses 10 through 13a, they are rewarded if they are careful. Paul says, look, we're just paid workers. We are rewarded for our work. We're getting our reward from Him. So we're looking to Him for our reward. Why don't you look to Him too and boast in Him and receive your reward as well? But he says, look, we're only rewarded by Him if we build carefully. Now notice, first of all, that you've got to build on the proper foundation. And Paul here is not just talking about apostles right now. He's not just talking about himself and Peter, nor is he talking about Apollos. He's talking about all of us. If we're God's fellow workers and we're going to be paid by Him, first of all, you've got to be sure how, that you're building appropriately and you've got to build on the one and only foundation that has been laid upon which you can build, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, you can look around and see all kinds of Christian lives. You can look around and see all kinds of churches, and people want to do things very differently. They're not only different denominations, but different styles and different musical cultures. And some people like to sing with an organ, and some people like to sing with a banjo or a guitar. Some people like to wear blue jeans, and some people like to wear suits. And so we think, all oh, these differences. Look, here's the one thing that matters. Are you building on the foundation of Jesus Christ? That you cannot change. 
And people who just like to change sometimes will go over here and build on a foundation that's not Christ. They want to build on the foundation of helping you along, giving you some advice, helping you be successful, helping you have it all now. That's not the foundation of Jesus Christ. The foundation of Jesus Christ is to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, to take up the cross and follow Him, and to worship and boast in Him alone. There's the foundation. And all these other things that appeal to worldly wisdom, seeking to uh, appeal to the needs of human beings and in America, that largely means appealing to the need for you to be entertained. Because you're sitting there six days out of the week punching your button or scrolling around on the you know, 200,000 channels that you have on your TV station, finding which one might just suit your particular mood for the moment. And when you go to church, you're expected the same thing. Give me something that entertains me. Not just keeps me awake, man. I mean, jazzes me. Gives me a little juice for my system to go through the week. And if everything's not just right, well, church was a failure. Thinking like a consumer rather than thinking, I'm going to build my life on the foundation. I'm going to listen to the Word of God to build my life on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. And I'm going to carefully take responsibility for my life in my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. And that's what I'm trying to do in church. And Paul says you've got to be careful. Build on the one foundation. Then notice also in verse, verse 13, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, well, his work will become manifest. What are gold, silver, and precious stones? Well, these are materials that Solomon used in the temple. They're materials that are appropriate to build God's house. What are those materials? Prayer. Scripture reading. Real Christian, accountable, and caring and sharing fellowship. Engaging in the mission of Jesus Christ. Those are all the jewels, the gold and the silver that we, build, that we use as building materials to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That kind of building will stand the test of time and will stand the judgment of God. And what are you building? When you build, what are you building with? You're, you're building with human beings. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that we're the living stones of the temple. So if you want to build on a foundation, how do you build? You develop lives. You lead lives to faith in Jesus Christ. And then you invest in those lives so that they're edified, which is just another architectural word, to build up the building. They're built up into the structure to be God's house. That's, that's what you're trying to do. That's your mission in life. Is it your mission in life? When you look at your recreational time, your business time, your community time, your family time, your weekends, Monday through Friday, is it all to build the temple of God? That's the agenda, gentlemen. If you're missing that agenda, you're missing what you're here for, and you're acting like infants. To just grab as much out of this life as you can, go around for the, you only go around once, you know, grab for all the gusto. That's what the world is teaching you. Paul says you're acting like children when you go to church like that. No. When you become a Christian, you are looking to build up. And you want to build on the foundation of Christ. You want to build with appropriate materials. And you want to, uh, you want to transform and edify human lives. That's building with gold and silver and precious stones. On the other hand, if you build with wood, hay, and straw, then when Christ's judgment comes upon your work, and it will... What will happen? Of course it's burned up. Wood, hay, stubble, straw, all burns. And when the fire of God's judgment comes, you'll find that you wasted your time. You built with wood, hay, and stubble. Something that doesn't endure. And all of life is going to be examined and tested. Now, uh, so we are rewarded, we've seen, as common laborers, as God's fellow servants, if we are careful, and then 13b through 15, at the last day. Because he says in verse 13, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here's what the apostle is saying. He's saying that, of course, 
we as human beings are judged, but if we're in Christ, we will pass the judgment because all of the wrath of God, which is due to fall upon us, actually falls upon Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. So we're saved. But as saved people, we want to have lives of meaning and purpose. We want to build meaningful, meaningfully. And the work that we do will also be judged. And he says, look, if your work is wood, hay, and stubble, it'll burn up. You'll be saved, fat little baby. You'll be saved. And uh, though as by fire, you might smell a little bit like smoke, uh, but you'll be saved. But your work will be destroyed. On the other hand, he's saying, if you're a child of God and you've been living like an adult, taking responsibility for your ethical life, seeking to serve other people, studying God's word and applying it in life, and building up the edifice of God's temple with human beings through prayer and the word and Christian fellowship and Christian disciplines, then when the judgment comes, that work will stand and you will have contributed in a massive way and you'll have great joy over it. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we've been viewing uh, our leaders wrongly. This is what leaders are. They are just common workers who are working with God, seeking to build in a way that will endure His judgment. Now, notice in verses 16, 17, not only are we viewing ourselves wrong, uh, the leaders wrongly, we're viewing ourselves wrongly. This is where some of our spiritual infancy comes from. We don't see ourselves properly. The Apostle Paul says, do you not know? You know, as Leon Morris points out, he uses this phrase 10 times in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? And he only uses it one time in all the other uh, epistles that he writes. Do you not know? What he's saying to him is, dummy, you don't know. So here he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And the word here for temple, there are two words for temple. One is the general word that covers the outer courts of the temple and everything. There's another word, the one that's used here, which means the inner compartments of the temple, where God's presence is. And he's saying, do you not understand? That's what you are. You're the place where God takes up his residence. And so he's saying, you need to understand who you are. You are the living bricks that make up the temple of God. You're the edifice that's being built. You're the, the gold and the silver uh, and the precious stones. You're it. You are the temple where God's presence dwells. And you've vastly underestimated yourselves. Uh, and so the Corinthians were, and so they were striving with each other. Look, if, if you know that your, uh, your daddy has about $100 million and there are three children, so you're going to receive 33 and a third million dollars. Uh, you're not going to be squabbling with your friends over $100. You're just not. Because in the back of your mind, you're going, chump change. Has nothing, I mean, what, I don't care about that. $10,000. Chump change. It just doesn't affect me at all. And this is the view of the believer. You're a child of God. You're, you're a king. You're, you're a prince. So why are you going to squabble over land battles? Who's got what estate? Or where, where do the boundary lines fall? And who gets what? Why are you going to worry about whether someone's dissed you, which is the number one source for male anger, is if someone showed you disrespect? Why, why is that going to bother you? It, does it matter? In just a little while, this guy, if he's not a believer, is going to be in the most misery that your eyes have ever beheld, and you are going to be exalted to a place you can't even imagine. So what difference does it make if he now thinks you're a chump? Uh, you're not. You're a champ, and you know it. Paul is saying the reason you all are squabbling and striving. The reason that you get mad when someone didn't ask you to teach Sunday school or someone didn't elect you as an elder. I know people who leave churches because they didn't get elected an elder. Uh, the, the reason you get angry because someone showed deference to someone else and bragged about what they did instead of bragging about what you did, you've forgotten who you are. You're a prince. You're God's chosen child. You're going to inherit the blooming universe. So stop fussing 
over pride in this life and chump change in this world. It's not worthy of your princely attention. You've forgotten who you are. That's what he's saying. We view ourselves wrongly. Now, lastly, verses 18 through 23. We've seen, first of all, in the major part of this chapter that our divisiveness uh, reveals our childishness. Uh, that's verses uh, 1 through 17. But in 18 through 23, we see that our divisiveness reveals our worldliness. It does. When you allow things to come between you and a brother in Christ, uh, when you get your feelings hurt or your pride wounded or you're striving over some relatively minor doctrinal idea and because you believe you're right, because you're a Presbyterian, you, um, just teasing, you, you're acting like a person from the world. You're allowing your pride to shape your religion. And he says what's happened with all these divisions in the church, and of course you know the biggest division comes, doesn't it, when we disagree about the senior minister. Oh, man. Those are the worst fights of all. I and mean, people have asked me, how do you fire a senior minister? It's the hard. You know, those of you who are in church leadership, your biggest problem is how in the world are you going to fire this guy? We're kind of glad it's tough for you. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? You can, you can split churches over that faster than anything else. I've told you all before, but the first thing I did when I got here, in fact, I did it before I actually got here. I started preaching in March, I think, of 1995. But in January of 1995, all the officers and I went out in the woods for a weekend. And I, the first thing I said to them was, I said, let me tell you how to fire me. Because that's your biggest problem. How are we going to get rid of the guy? And I told them exactly how to do it. And then I asked them the question, so now how, how do we fire you? <laughs> because elders and deacons can be just as protective of their turf as senior ministers can. We're all servants. We're not bosses. We're servants. We've got to be disposable. If we're not disposable, we don't know who we are. Yes, we're kings and queens. We're princes and princesses in Israel. But in this world, we're at the Lord's service. And we should be easily disposable without dividing a church. If you're a minister and your departure leads to a division, let me just tell you something real bold-faced. Something's wrong with your ministry. If you didn't train people that this is not about your leadership, but it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, something is defective in your ministry. And one of the clearest ways to find out the value of a ministry is to see what happens to, to the sheep when the shepherd leaves. And that'll show you what, what they've been talking about. Have they been talking about the teacher or they've been talking about the master, Jesus Christ? So Paul is saying, look, your divisiveness, divisiveness reveals your worldliness. And in 18 through 20, we see that we cherish the wisdom of the world. We do. We... We cherish the thought forms of the world around us and then we bring those into the church. Is your church successful? Are the numbers right? Do you have the right kind of people in your church? Are the ones who are the managers, not just the teachers, but the principals, are they in your church? Not just the, the CEOs, but the owners, are they in your church? And so we, we value our churches based on worldly standards. And often, who are the leaders in your church? Well, they're the ones who lead in the world. And some of that's not bad. People have leadership skills, and it's used in the world as well as in the church. But I remember a church I was in, uh, well, I'll just tell you, it was Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I was with Bethlehem Steel Corporation. You go to First Presbyterian Church in Bethlehem in those days. I doubt it's that way now. But when you're looking at the officer structure of the church, you may as well be looking at the organizational chart of Bethlehem Steel Corporation. We just value worldly wisdom. We just bring the whole thing in. There's a different way of thinking. And in verses 21 through 23, Paul says, we forget the inheritance of the saints. He says, so let no one boast in men. Why? Here's the answer. And here is the, here's the heart of everything. For all things are yours. Why are you grabbing for Paul and eliminating Apollos? Why are you grabbing for Apollos and eliminating Cephas? They're all yours. Why do you say, uh, well, I go to Maxie Dunham's church, not Adrian Rogers' church? 
Maxie and Adrian are both yours. And of course, both of them, you can read their books and listen to their tapes. One of them is still living, one of them is not, but they're still all yours. And Paul is saying, why are you all dividing up over stuff and it's all yours? Do you realize the Lord has given you everything? I, have a, I remember listening to Dr. Gerstner talk about how thrilled he was. He was, a, he was a Jonathan Edwards scholar. And he said, I go to the Yale Library, which has the greatest collection of Jonathan Edwards' works. And he said, I can go to that library anytime I want to at Yale University, and I have access to all of Edwards' writings. He says, it's just magnificent. And he said, I don't have it in my personal library. No, it's in the Yale Library. And why is that good for me? Because these people take care of it just for me. He said, the librarian, she puts it on the right shelf. Every time I use it, she puts it back so that I can get Edward's works whenever, whenever I want them. He said, the whole library is mine. These people are my servants. He said, do you ever understand that this world is yours? You can travel wherever you want to. You can go and do anything you want to do. It's just God has made it all for you, and you're going to inherit all of it. And when you inherit it, all the evil will be purged from it. Your father's not going to give you something that's suffused with evil. He's going to purge all that evil out and then he's going to hand it over to you and it's all yours. He said, look at y'all. You're squabbling over little stuff and little people and following men. Are you not thinking like babies instead of following Jesus Christ and thinking about what you've been given in him? This is what solves all the selfish ambition, all the striving, and all the quarreling in the church. And Paul says, remember, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So you're wrapped up in the love of God. That's the solution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of all things for your children. Thank you for the forgiveness for us, when we act like babies, and we often do. Thank you that we still shall inherit the great legacy that is ours in Christ, regardless of our sin, because you, O oh Lord, have loved us with an everlasting love. In light of these things, we pray, O oh God, that we may be men who serve others, who take responsibility for our own behavior, who are looking to build with silver and gold and precious stones rather than wood and hay and straw. Enable us to invest our lives and our time and our resources in things that really matter because of the love of Jesus Christ. And we make our prayer in his saving name. Amen.